bless you. Take your Bibles and go to Titus, Titus chapter 1. We're going to take a little look at Titus tonight. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I love Titus. So in Titus chapter 1, look at verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You're going to notice that as we read through this book that God is referred to as our Savior. And this is a little different. Most of the time we see Jesus as our Savior. So when we read about God being our Savior, the idea behind this is is that God is the author of our salvation. So I look at this opening in Titus, and it's uh, it's quite an opening. It has uh, some great truths in it. First, that the purpose of this epistle that is for God's elect and the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Godliness is the objective. Godliness is that true and vital relationship that we can have with God, that we should have with God. It talks about our faith and hope that rests on the hope of eternal life. And then it says, and I love this, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. Um, I've said it before, we don't stand on the promises, we stand on the character of the promiser, that God who does not lie promised it to us. So before we go on with the book of Titus, I wanted to talk a little bit about Titus. Titus was a Gentile. Paul called Titus his true son in the faith, and this means that Paul led Titus to Christ. Titus later on became a fellow laborer of Paul's. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas from Antioch to Jerusalem. Titus participated in the Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts chapter 15, where the church decided the question about the Gentiles, that they were not obligated to keep the Old Testament fasts and rituals, including the rules concerning circumcision of males, and all of which were unnecessary for salvation. Titus served in the church of Corinth. On Paul's third missionary journey, which took place between 53 and 57, Paul arrived in Troas expecting to meet Titus there. When he didn't find his friend there, 
Paul left for Macedonia, and Titus rejoined Paul in Philippi, where he gave him the good report regarding the Corinthian church. And they responded favorably to Paul's reproof in 1 Corinthians. When Titus returned to Corinth, he hand-delivered the epistle of 2 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. And while there organized a collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Several years later, Titus and Paul traveled to the island of Crete, and that's where the, the book of Titus takes place, where Paul left Titus behind to continue and strengthen his work. Titus's task was in Crete, not just administratively, but he was also set to, it says in the word, straighten out that which was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. So Titus had developed a reputation among the believers as being a faithful servant of the Lord and was dedicated to aid Paul. He was trustworthy. He was dependable. Since he was such, Paul appointed him to lead the works in Corinth, Crete, and Dalmatia. Paul called him, quote, my partner and fellow worker in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Knowing the difficult situations in both Corinth and Crete, we can infer that Titus was an insightful man, and he knew how to handle problems with wisdom and grace. Scripture says that Titus had a God-given love for the Corinthian believers. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern that I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. So Titus was a servant who didn't just sit around waiting for people to tell him what to do. He took the spiritual initiative. So verse 5, it says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now the King James on this verse says, and I like how it reads, it says, I left thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order things that are wanting. So the purpose here of this epistle to Titus was to let him know that he was there to set in order things that were wanting. So Paul was an apostle. As an apostle, he was a church planter. He had planted this church at Crete. Crete was an island, or is an island, southeast of Greece, right in the middle of the Mediterranean. You may know it, the ancient Minoans who lived on the island of Crete. They worshipped the Minotaur, the mystical beast that was half man and half bull. This island had been occupied by the Romans, by the Greeks, by the Venetians, by the Arabs and Ottomans. It's now part of Greece. But even though Paul had set this church up, there were things that still needed to be set in order. And as I said earlier, it wasn't just administratively, it was also, and most importantly, spiritually, that Titus was there to set things in order spiritually. And this is true for any church work, that there are things that need to be set in order regularly. There's what's called spiritual maintenance. I talked with my fellowship about what... Um, what is called spiritual entropy. Entropy is the word that we know from science, and it's the tendency of things to devolve from a state of order to a state of disorder. That's why from time to time, things need to be set in order. There needs to be a spiritual maintenance. The first thing that Paul tells Titus to do is appoint elders from town to town. So you get this idea here that the early church met in the home but you had leadership covered over the town. That was, that was leadership from town to town. 
And Paul gives Titus the description of a biblical elder in verse 6. So it says, an elder must be first blameless. Now, what does blameless mean? It means not perfection. doesn't mean that he's necessarily sinless, but it is a person who's quick to repent. The elder must be a husband of but one wife. He needs to be a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing. I think about when I read this in Peter, where it talks about that the overseer is not supposed to be lords over God's heritage, but helpers of their joy. And I think that's important for a leader. A leader is not supposed to be quick-tempered. He's supposed to be thoughtful and wise. He's not supposed to be given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, this leader or this elder must be hospitable, one who loves to do what is good. He's to be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. I think of um, Philippians where it says, let your moderation be known among all. The Lord is at hand. In other words, an elder is to be someone with an, a well-ordered life, a well-ordered life. He's not a person who yields to his appetites. And you'll see here the difference between this elder and the Cretan culture that he's set, he's to set in order. Now, uh, one note here is that an elder, here it states that an elder is to be a man, a husband of one wife. But there is scriptural evidence that elders were women as well, which I think is an important point. In the early church, there was Phoebe in uh, Sancria. Uh, there was also a woman named Nympha in Laodicea. There were women elders in Philippi. The reason it's in this language of men is because the culture leaned, of course, towards this patriarchal mindset. Um, but there definitely were women elders in the early church. And the point that it makes here is that it's a privilege and an honor to be an elder. It's a privilege and honor. Verse 9, this man must hold firmly the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can do two things. First, that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and he can refute those who oppose it. It's very important. This is what it means to set in order things that are wanting from a spiritual point of view, that you must have sound doctrine and you must be able to use it correctly. We're supposed to encourage and refute with sound doctrine, and we're not supposed to be afraid to speak up. There's times where we have to speak up. We can't overrate the significance of sound doctrine. I thought about Stephen in the book of Acts, where Stephen argued with the Jewish leadership, and it said there that they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke, the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. This doctrine that he's to hold to, this sound doctrine of Scripture, is given by the guidance of the Scripture. It's not necessarily the confession of faith of any particular denomination. The sound doctrine is to be spiritual doctrine of the risen and glorified Christ. That's what sound doctrine is around. Look in verse 10. It says, there are many rebellious uh, people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group, they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 12, every one of them, their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. 
This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. So it's interesting here that Paul categorizes these island people, these Cretans, in this very unflattering way. He notes the reputation by citing one of their prophets, that they were liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. We should be this honest about the cultures that we work in as well. Paul says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, I'd like to think about this a little bit here. You know, most of the time when we read the word, we're told that we're supposed to be kindly. And, and I believe that's true. You know, it says that if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. There's this whole notion of kindliness when we are working with people. But there is a time for a sharp rebuke, especially when we're dealing with a stubborn spirit. Titus was dealing with people who were habitual liars, habitually slothful. And with them, he was required to speak sharply and snap them out of their stubbornness. People will say that that's not very loving. It is very loving, especially when Paul says that you're supposed to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And in other words, if you say it to them any other way, you're not going to get the same results. That's what the word says. Look in verse 14. It says, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or commands of those who reject the truth. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. What are we talking about here? It's perspective. If I keep a pure soul, if I keep my perspective pure, then I'm going to see things from a pure perspective. But if I allow myself to be corrupted through sin, through unrepentant sin in my life, I'm not going to see things the way they need to be seen. These people claim to know God, but their actions, by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, they are disobedient, and they are unfit for doing anything good. I read this quote one time. It says, social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. So it's important for us to keep ourselves spiritually clean, pure, because it's only by that way that we're able to see things the way they need to be seen. And this is one of the jobs that Titus had in Crete. He had to set in order things that are wanting, that he was going to be dealing with a group of people who did not see things right. They professed themselves or professed that they knew God, but in their works, they denied him. And Titus had to distinguish between the two, the humble believers versus these people who claimed to know God but denied him. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And we see this a lot in this epistle, sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Well, uh, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that God has made us competent ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when we talk about sound doctrine, we're talking about the spiritual doctrine, specifically dealing with the sacred secret. And this doctrine is to give life. This isn't dry old church orthodoxy, in other words. Now, certainly there are tenets to our faith, right? We believe that Jesus is not God. That's a tenet to our faith. We believe that the dead are not alive. That's another tenet to our faith. But over the years, I've seen that too many hide behind these tenets of the faith, and they never get around to walking by the Spirit. And God wants us to walk by the Spirit. 
It is the doctrine of the Spirit of God that is able to make us whole and alive in the Spirit. Most importantly, sound doctrine adheres to Scripture. Verse 2, teach older men to be temperate, temperate, self-controlled, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith and love and in endurance. This means that they are grave. They have a dignified seriousness to them. There's no fool like an old fool. Verse 3, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. I love that. That's wonderful. Verse 4, then, see that? Then. So by living a chaste spiritual life, they are now able to train young women to love. That word love there is phileo. It means to be friends with their husbands and their children. I was thinking about that. Imagine this in a culture that constantly pits women against their husbands. That old women, older women, the elder women, can teach the younger women how to be friends with their husband, husbands and their children. I just thought this was so sweet. You know, it's something that should be taught. Teach women how to be friends with their husbands. That's awesome. Verse 5, to be self-controlled and pure. To be busy at home. I thought about this and I was thinking about Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. And it's, I, I just put a quote in here. It's, uh, it was uh, 13 through 22. It says that she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps a spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. So, so you get this idea of the woman who, of the household who is busy about her task. She's not a busybody. She's not caught up in gossip, but she is prudent and she is wise. It goes on in verse 5, to be kind. There's something that's pretty wonderful, to have kindness, genuine kindness, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. In verse 6, it says, similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. You know, I used to be a young man once upon a time. I've got two teenage sons, and it is a true saying that young men, all of them struggle with pride, foolishness, and self-control. Every young man's challenge. So they need to be taught by the older men to be self-controlled. Verse 7, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Uh, we used to have a phrase in the ministry, you can't teach heart, you've just got to live around it. So that's true. So it says, in your teaching, and this is Paul still speaking to Titus, in your teaching, Titus, to show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. It is essential to the teaching of the Bible that we have integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. Now, I was thinking about this. In this job that we have in holding forth the scriptures, we are not entertainers. We're ministers of the gospel. 
I thought about a quote that A.W. Tozer said. He said, that, evangel that evangelism that draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of men is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of the hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. And I think the minister of Christ needs to be able to speak bluntly that way. There's no problem with the occasional joke. We don't want to be a bunch of gloomy gusses. But we are dealing with serious issues here. And the gospel is serious. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, this is talking about household slaves. This isn't the chattel slavery that we had in America. Uh, this was very common throughout the Greco-Roman culture. So, uh, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in our present age. I, I think that says it all right there, that any ministry worth its salt is going to be teaching people how to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's it. That's it. It's perfect. Now, it goes on here in verse 13 to say, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Better translation for that is, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior's glory, Jesus Christ. The idea here being that Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Verse 14, it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. So Jesus is the glory of God, our God and Savior. I'm thinking of uh, Luke chapter 9, where it says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him at or when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Look at verse 15. It says, these then are the things that you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Isn't that something? So, so this whole idea of setting in order things that are wanting, that was the, the job, the task that Titus was given on the island of Crete to set these things in order, and he was to, to do it with all authority, right? Encourage and rebuke. Encourage and rebuke. You know, I was thinking about uh, when I was putting this teaching together, while we may uh, pursue research projects as we study specific topics in the Word as a whole, the teaching of any true Christian ministry should be described as th thus. It should teach that God's grace has appeared to everyone. That this grace, rather than being a license for sin, is in fact telling us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live sober, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And to do so while we wait for the blessed hope uh, and appearing of God's glory, Jesus Christ. Look at verse, or chapter 3. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. You see, we live in an age of slander, in case you didn't notice that. 
It's incredible. Everybody is slandering everybody. I've got a Twitter account. I go on Twitter periodically, probably more than periodically. But that's all people do. They slander each other. I see far too much of it in the church as well. We need to be very careful not to allow ourselves to become false witnesses. It's a bad habit. Proverbs chapter 6 says that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates slander. He hates it. We need to be a thoughtful, heartfelt, and deliberate people. We should always strive against being rash and impetuous, especially when we're dealing with somebody else's reputation. Very important. Look at verse 3. It says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, or hateful to one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. Isn't that wonderful? It's not what we did. It's what God did. He, God, saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. I was thinking about how this is the simple test that we all need to ask ourselves. Whose glory are we seeking? You know, personally, whose glory am I seeking? Am I seeking God's glory or am I seeking my own glory? I've recently been visiting certain Unitarian websites. You know, I've been visiting them because, of course, you know, they're Unitarian, biblical Unitarians. I'm a biblical Unitarian. I thought, hey, you know, we could have some fellowship. Uh, while we agree on certain topics, there's a whole lot of intellectual self-glorying going on there that I've noticed. Um, the spirit that guides many of these people who have been posting on these, these sites is not the Holy Spirit, but a very human spirit. It's the same kind of academic spirit that we find in a lot of colleges. You know, you can open the Bible. I mean, well, I should say it this way. Two people can open the same Bible and get two very different messages out of it. One opens the Bible and it's a science project to him, right? Another person opens the Bible and it's rules for life from a loving God. We got to make sure that we come down on the side of the second person, not the per first person. Absolutely. The Bible has all kinds of amazing things in it that we should be researching, but we've got to be careful that that's not all it is. You don't have to turn there, but First Timothy chapter 1 says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. I think it's very important that we be really careful that we don't get ourselves caught up in a lot of this idle and vain discussion. Our first commitment must be to obedience to God. When I'm thinking about fellowshipping with another organization, the first thing that I'm looking for is humility of heart. And if I don't see it, I don't fellowship with the people. This record says this is a trustworthy saying. God saved us. He washed us. He renewed us by the Holy Spirit. And it's he who generously poured out on us this Holy Spirit. 
He made us heirs of eternal life. So let's be careful who we're hanging out with. Goes on to say, and I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. I, I just think the word wording there is very interesting. Being careful to do what is good. Uh, King James says, be careful to good works or careful to devote ourselves to good work. I think about how Satan is the great deceiver. There was this quote I saw the other day online. It says, if Satan could talk angels out of heaven, he, he, he can talk you into hell. So be mindful of the voices that you're listening to. Satan would love to sidetrack the Christian into lesser causes, lesser causes. We need to be careful to devote ourselves to God's good. And what is God's good? The good news, right? The gospel. It goes on to say, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Unprofitable and useless. Second Timothy says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. My, my mother used to always tell me when I was a boy, your friends are some of the most important people in your life, the people that you hang out with. In Timothy, it says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels, right? Uh, King James calls it foolish and unlearned questions. Another place in Timothy, it says, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. But the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. We are living in that time right now. Verse 10, it says, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man's warp is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Pretty sobering, isn't it? Verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way to see that they have everything they need. Now listen to this. I think this is excellent, and this is what I'm going to finish up with. It says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. How about that? We need to be living our lives productively, spiritually, that we are living our lives before God, that God rewards us for a well-lived life. And I think that we should all be taking heed to that in our own lives, setting in order the things that are wanting, that we have things that have been in our lives far too long. And God, through the Holy Spirit, is telling us we need to offload those things. We need to put on the good works. We need to be able to go forth and do what God is calling us to do. And then as we do this in our own lives, we need to help our brothers and sisters do it as well. Verse 15, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. All right. And that's what I wanted to share. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Sharing. I've got a lot of work to do now. <laughs> <laughs> That is a boatload of info, man, right there. I'll tell you. 
Good stuff. Well, I wanted to close this evening out with a special song. The title of it is Angels We Have Heard on High, and I'm sure you have heard it on high prior to me telling you the name of it, but this rendition of it, I don't think you've ever heard. thought it would really bless you to hear this since this is the last WWF we'll be doing for 2021 because we are swiftly rolling into the end of the year where we say to our friends, see you next year. And I remember the first time somebody told me that and I was like, well, where are you going? He said, well, it's next week. I was like, I'm a... <laughs> but anyway, we'll see you next year. So enjoy this beautiful song by Home Freight. Angels we have heard on high Sweetly singing o'er the plains Angels we strains Gloria in excelsis Deo Gloria in Gloria Yeah.